0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Uncomfortable. Comfortable conversations around uncomfortable topics. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Uncomfortable, the podcast. Today we are exploring invisible chronic illnesses. I'll be interviewing Shannon and Shannon is a mother of one young boy and she suffers from four chronic illnesses and unfortunately her son also suffers from a chronic illness In this episode we'll just be exploring Shannon's day-to-day life, the reactions that she gets from other people in her community and her circles and health professionals and we'll be talking a little bit about why there's still such a stigma around chronic illness. I really hope that you enjoy our conversation and that it's educational or hey maybe if you're someone who suffers from chronic illness then you can relate to a lot of what Shannon is saying. Enjoy the conversation. As always, there may be some adult language, so I always recommend that you pop those headphones on. Shannon, thank you so much for joining me on Uncomfortable. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. Now, I, um, you reached out to me, which was great, uh, through our online form, because you yourself suffer from not just one chronic illnesses, but quite a few chronic illnesses, and I have come across, I have a few friends who also suffer with chronic illness, and it's something that I wanted to learn more about, so I'm very grateful that you reached out to me. Thank you this is a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a good thing for me to learn to be you know a better friend or more understanding of other people and I think it's great for anyone to kind of learn more about Mm -hmm. if they especially if they don't suffer themselves. So tell us a little bit if you can go back to the beginning of when the realization came into place that you were suffering from a chronic illness and what that looked like what were the signs and the symptoms
1: this goes way back. Um, the first experience that I had, at least on the going into the medical system for a chronic illness was in, gosh, I don't remember what year it was. I was 12. Oh, wow. And I have endometriosis. That was the first Was that the first? No, I think that was the second illness that was diagnosed. Um, But the suspicion of it was there when I was 12, and Mm -hmm. I was having just a horrible time with my menstrual cycle, and there was so much pain and so much blood, and I was bleeding for two weeks, and all of these things that, that my mother knew were not normal, and she also had endometriosis Mm. so she had a she had a lot of empathy for this but she also had understanding of what the symptoms were like and um I imagine that she was probably really crushed to see Mm. those in her daughter because that's something that you definitely don't want to pass on but um she was the one that that introduced me to receiving care for that which for that particular For that particular situation is difficult, because I was presenting as a pediatric patient with what is thought of as a very grown-up issue. Mm-hmm. And so things like my pain weren't considered. Um, it was almost it was a very, very archaic, just dehumanizing process, because I was a child, I had a voice that didn't matter. I had. Pain that nobody could see. I had all of these symptoms that were impacting my quality of life, and it it wasn't taken seriously at all. Wow. Through multiple physicians, and it wasn't, and you know that started when I was twelve. The mm-hmm. solution was, well, we're going to put you on birth control pills, and that's going to help. And it it did in part, but then you're on them for so long. There's all of this other stuff that comes up, and then my body would start responding to them in inappropriate ways after about nine to 12 months of being on them so i'd have yeah. to switch and I, it was this whole big jumble of stuff but i i didn't get my official diagnosis until i was 26 or 27 really so because poor- it needs to be done by surgery i mean you have to go no. in and, and see the tissue growth and, um, all of that stuff. And in, in the interim in that decade that there was so much difficulty in finding people that were willing to help me. And honestly, I I never did find a physician or Mm -hmm. any practitioner that was willing to help because it, it was all the, the regular stuff. Well, you're a woman, you're going to have to get used to it. Or, um, if you have a baby, this will go away. Not true, by the way. Wow. Um, you're too young
0: to have was... a hysterectomy. Wow. You know. Yeah, and I didn't s- even know that. kind of, you know, having a baby is something. Oh, yeah. Like, why did they say that? Do you know, was that just some sort of myth?
1: Because it's something that they're taught in medical school. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure the grounds for that, because I think any peer-reviewed research would show quite clearly <laughs> in women with endometriosis who are able to conceive because it impacts fertility significantly mm-hmm. that it doesn't magically go away after being pregnant and carrying a child it 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 just doesn't and even things like hysterectomy can't automatically take everything away because mm-hmm. it depends on where your your deposited tissue is going okay. so you can have endometrial tissue on your intestine and removing your uterus doesn't make that go away because the tissue is still going to find a way to get there and grow even mm-hmm. if you you get we call it get cleaned out every couple of years somebody will go in and remove all of that stuff but it comes back, even wow. after you've had a hysterectomy, it comes back, and that's what hurts so much: is the things growing in places they're not supposed to be.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then there's just being no, no solution. You know, no way to get to kind of the root of the problem. That, that is the
1: big, big thing with mm-hmm. chronic illness. It's that a lot of us think that we're crazy because we have. We have symptoms a lot of the time. We have more symptoms than we have signs. Signs would be something that a physician or a nurse could see. That's Mm -hmm. something that's measurable, Mm -hmm. whereas a symptom is what we feel internally. And so we can, we can qualify it and we can attempt to quantify it, but it's not measurable to Mm -hmm. someone else. And because of that, there's so little research on most of these illnesses. I mean, I'm—I was trying to think of yesterday, of a chronic illness where we know the cause, and there is a treatment. And, and you couldn't it, think of any. This is the difficulty oh. for the the medical community is because they don't really have anything to do for people that have something like lupus or. Mm-hmm. MS or fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis, they, they understand pieces of it and they can certainly develop medications that suppress the symptoms. But when it comes to true treatment of it, to eradicating the disease, to returning the body to something that is more normal, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, that doesn't
0: exist. Wow. Oh yeah, that must be incredibly frustrating. You mentioned that endometri- oh, god it's one of those words I <laughs> on, right? Endometriosis was the second diagnosis you had. So, what was the first one? Are you okay sharing that?
1: Oh yeah, the first one um, was when I was, I believe, I was twenty-four. And that sticks out to me because I got married when I was twenty five and I was in the throes of dealing with all of this while I was getting ready to be married and thinking, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'm gonna flip out when I'm exchanging my vows." Um, but then i I was diagnosed with panic disorder and generalized anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it was the panic disorder was bad enough that it was interfering with my life. Mm -hmm. I would plan my life around what I could do and what I couldn't do because if I wasn't having a panic attack, I was afraid that I was going to have a panic attack. And so I was looking for ways that I could drive to work without having a Mm -hmm. panic attack or uh, set up my, my workstation So that I was minimizing some of the inputs that were coming in and giving my system a little safer place. And I was avoiding people and conversations and all of this stuff because it was really hard for me to feel like I was going to die. Like there was an elephant Mm -hmm. sitting on my chest and I was having a heart attack and I couldn't think clearly and I was sweating and my heart was racing and all of this To me, that feels like very physical stuff. And yet when I would talk to a physician about it, it was, oh, yeah, well, that's just panic. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, I can appreciate that it's not an actual heart attack. And I can appreciate that it's not cancerous growth. But when you are feeling it and when Mm -hmm. it's interrupting your life in that way, what you really want is, is help. And that was another case in which um, it's one of those things that you you have or you don't have, and it doesn't really go away. You can learn how to manage it really well, and you can scoot it over into remission, but when things change in your life, it will come back because that's kind of the way that your brain is set up.
0: And so, Did you ever notice anything in particular that would trigger that, or could it be anything?
1: At that time, it was so bad that it was anything. I would have them for no reason. I, I would sit in a quiet spot and feel overcome with dread mm. and start panting and feel like I couldn't stand up anymore and, you know, all this really crazy stuff. Yeah. And the, I'm a logical person. So at the same time, I'm thinking this is completely ridiculous. I'm fabricating this danger and this fear and this dread. And yet I can't make it stop. Yeah. So the solution for that, I use that term very loosely, (laughs) is is medication. And it, it can be really helpful for getting people to a safer place where they can Start doing the other work that they need to do to change their nervous system a bit. Yeah, but the you know it comes with all of this heavy flattening, and so you go from being a person who's living in extremes to being a person that feels nothing, and that's yeah.
0: that's just
1: that's a, its own kind of awful.
0: Yeah, did was it generally antidepressants? that were recommended to you for anxiety? I had, um, gosh, and I don't even remember
1: the ones that I was taking. I think I had two or three different kinds that I, I, weren't taking, I wasn't taking them together, but over time we were figuring out what worked and what mm. didn't. And I think everything that I had was specifically for anxiety. I don't think okay. I've ever had an antidepressant. I'm not, mm. I'm not positive, but I don't, I don't recall that I have.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just always curious because I hear of people who suffer from anxiety and that's what they end up on. And I always just kind of wonder, like, what's the thinking in the medical community, like that that's a solution? I'm Not that I'm saying it's not, I'm just yeah. wondering, like, why and what the link is there. You have spoken about kind of the reactions um, that you would get from people in like the healthcare community and finding, um, you know, trying to find someone that would actually help you. Very very difficult. What was the, um, like, as you kind of progressed, you know, you went on to have even more chronic illnesses. Was there ever a point where you did find any care or someone willing to try or was it always just brushed off?
1: I had a really hard time until I was, oh, golly, um, 34. 35,
0: Mm.
1: 36, maybe. And I was seeing a naturopathic physician at the time and was having, I was just having so much trouble. I would sit down and fall asleep. I was so tired that I couldn't drive anymore. It wasn't Mm. safe. I couldn't make decisions. You know, I was having all of this stuff happening. And she was someone who, figured out what was going on and also in the most compassionate human way said there's not a lot we can do for this because there's just so much that we don't know here are the things that i know about that i have a lot of research on and i want you to know that i can't i can't promise you that they're going to make a difference we can try them and we'll do them one at a time and we'll see what does make a difference. And it wasn't anything about medications or that kind of stuff. It was, this is, I'm, I'm giving you the best of what I can and Mm -hmm. I will refer you to other people as I think that's appropriate. But for right now, this is what I think we should do. And she was, she's the one physician I think out of my entire history, of stuff that has been truly helpful, which is, I'm so glad that I've Mm -hmm. met her and that she's close to home. And at the same time, I think, gosh, you know, should it really take 20 something years of, of going through the system and, and looking for help and frank information to find someone that's, that just doesn't seem right. Yeah.
0: It really doesn't. It really doesn't. Now, are you okay sh- with sharing some of the the recommendations she had? Like, how are you mm-hmm. kind of working through? Um, you know, even just coping mechanisms, or have you found some of the stuff that she gave you actually like working? Or you see a difference anyway?
1: Certainly. Um, well, by the time that I had seen her, I had been diagnosed with celiac disease. Mm which is another thing that has to be done surgically. Mm-hmm. And, and I was seeing her for all of this cognitive stuff and extreme fatigue. And she said that I have a chronic Epstein-Barr infection, mm-hmm. which is the virus that causes mono. Okay. And I've had mono before. I've had mono twice that's been diagnosed. And I thought that you could only get it once. Great. Yeah. Right? that's like, um, like chicken pox. You're only yeah. supposed to get it once. And <laughs> and oddly enough, I had chicken pox as a kid and I already had shingles as an adult, which is crazy because I was under 40 at the time. <laughs> oh, God. That and must that's just horrible. not supposed to happen. Yeah. Oh yeah. The pharmacist gave me, it was a look of disbelief. Um, yeah. anyway, so she was helping me with that. And that's, that's another one of those very mysterious illnesses mm-hmm. where there's hardly any research about it. And the symptoms from person to person are so diverse. Mm-hmm. So in my case, I had a lot of inflammation along my spine and in my brain, which is what was causing all of this neurological stuff. Mm-hmm. And there are things that you can do to help with that. So we were looking at bringing down inflammation. We're looking at doing some stuff with the immune system, but we also have to balance that really well because I have an autoimmune disease. If I put a lot into my immune system and I'm not being very careful about it, then everything else goes haywire because my body's immune system is already kind of off. So it's one of the things, the first thing that I started with was her, with her was these massive vitamin injections, B6 and B12. And I wasn't, I didn't have an attachment to whether that worked either way. It was hopeful, but I wasn't expecting a lot. Mm -hmm. And it, it did make an improvement. I think that that helped get me over the hump of the crushing fatigue. And the Epstein-Barr virus causes chronic fatigue syndrome. And that's, people make jokes about that because they think, oh, well, you know, you're just tired all the time, yeah, that's really rough. I could totally stay in bed. But when it, um, when you don't have the energy to get up and go to the toilet, Because your body is so tired, it's like it's been squeezed in a vise and yeah. you're just this crumpled up can. Um, it's hard. So it was a bit of a lift from that. And then we tried working on acupuncture hmm. <clears throat> because she's also an acupuncturist. And I have not a fear of needles, but not a great comfort with them. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was hard. And she helped me work up to that. So she would start with points on my back so that I couldn't see and had a very lovely setup and it, it didn't hurt. It wasn't uncomfortable. There were times when I would feel a zing. Mm-hmm. She, she'd put the needle in and then spin it
0: yeah. a little
1: bit. And we were talking about that later and she'd say, well, you know, that was a point that you really needed to have stimulated because mm-hmm. there was stuff in there that was stuck. And as I became more and more okay with that, then we would work up to doing some of the points on the front and I would have the needles in my hands and I had some on my face and my forehead. So
0: I'm lying there (laughs) looking up thinking, gosh, I hope I don't fall off this table. I know. I I love acupuncture. One of my fears is that I'm going to fall asleep and roll over with the needles in me. Yeah. That would be terrible. Right. It's I love it, but that's the one thing that goes through my mind. So I'm like, don't fall asleep. Don't fall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Relax, but don't. There's no no pressure.
1: Totally. (laughs) And
0: how did you find the acupuncture? Like, how long are you still doing it to this day? I'm not I'm
1: not still doing the acupuncture. Um, I did that for It was probably a little over a year. And our goal, um, what she told me when we first started talking about options was she said, you have about three to five years to turn this around or else it's going to be stickier. Mm. And it will be harder to make progress. And we talked about a lot of different things. One of the big things that came from that was just changing my lifestyle. And I had been working in a job that she very plainly told me did not agree with my physical health. And she said, you can stay in your job and do what you really enjoy doing and be sick and get sicker, or you can look at some other options. And I know that's a difficult choice and I don't wanna put all of this on you, but my job is to help you and i think that's one of the biggest things that i can see that would make a difference so that was that was a difficult choice and i fought it for a long time and then i finally decided you know she's she's right and it that has been the biggest factor wow so how, changing how long, my lifestyle how long were you in that job for um let's see i was there for another <clears throat> Two two years after diagnosis. Oh. And it well, I guess it was about a year and a half after diagnosis and two years after symptoms. So it took you a while to kind of make
0: that decision.
1: Yeah, well, I had just not long before finished a master's degree in that field. Yeah. yeah. And I was doing really great things, and I loved the work, and I had been working toward it for a long time, and there was a lot of attachment Mm -hmm. wrapped up in that, and um, definition of who I was, I, you know, my priorities were not in the best place, because I was Mm -hmm. so much focused on my work as who I was, and what I was in the world, instead of just me being me, yeah, that's a person that has a job yeah you know, I I was the job and so that made it harder mm-hmm. but it's so almost, much more necessary
0: yeah yeah it's um, almost like you kind of saw that job <clears> as your identity <throat> and then you're trying to walk away from what you think is your identity it's not really yeah. but that's your know, your mindset at the time yeah 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 wow. that was it was a difficult choice but I would absolutely do that again Yeah. Is there anything else in your lifestyle you had to, you changed up to kind of make things improve? Um, that was the big
1: one because by that time I already had a super clean diet because I had to for celiac disease. Um, I was doing well with physical activity until I got sick and then I, I couldn't sit down without falling asleep. So (laughs) it wasn't likely that I was going to be doing powerlifting or bicycling or yeah. swimming or anything <laughs> like that. Um, that, was, that was really the big thing. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't a smoker. Um, there wasn't anything else in my life that was risky from a health perspective. It was just the fact that I'm an overachiever and I was in a high-stress job and I was asking my body to do things that she just really wasn't interested in doing.
0: Yeah, and how's, how has it been since you left? How long ago did you let go of that job? It has
1: been, it was three years ago in March, so I left in 2016.
0: Yeah, and how's, how's your
1: health been since? It's been so much better. Mm -hmm. I still have, and I probably will always have flares and off days. And if I get something like a virus, for example, it Mm -hmm. stays in my system a lot longer than it does Mm -hmm. in anybody else that I know. Things like that. But um, it's my whole life is better because I've changed things to suit me. Not just what I feel like doing, but I'm, I'm doing the hard work of paying attention to what is going on in my body and my own biofeedback system and using that to make decisions about what I'm going to do that day or what I can do in the next week and being really, really honest and um, prudent
0: with the resources that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, in the past in our little pre-interview that now your your kids, your son, also has chronic illness. Mm-hmm. So what's the, the kind of day in the life of, you know, of your life, just kind of getting yourself up if you're having an off day, but then also being able to kind of manage and be there for a child who's also suffering?
1: Yeah, this is a... The thing about chronic illness is that it's the best exercise in budgeting ever mm-hmm. because you, your resources are massively constrained. And so you have to figure out what the things are in order of importance, where you can take away from, where you can reallocate. And that's what we do. So uh, we tend to react to each other Health wise, if I'm having a hard time, he's more likely to have a hard time as I'm starting to recover. Mm. And vice versa. So if he's having a hard time, once he starts recovering, I'm going to have a hard time. Oh, interesting. Because we're so tuned in to each other mm-hmm. and we share experiences all the time. So we, our bodies just are smart enough to know that during the time that the other person may need us more, that we need to be on for that, yeah. and then when that person is starting to recover, that uh, now it's time. Yeah, now it's time to ask for help. But a, a day for us is the magic of our day is that we schedule just one thing. If we schedule anything,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is such a different life for me than having to wake up at a certain time and then leave the house by a certain time with him to get mm-hmm. him to daycare, and then go to work, and then spend the day in meetings, and then leave on time to pick him up, and all of these appointment type things. Yes. We both wake up when our bodies tell us that it's time to wake up. We don't use alarm clocks. We don't schedule mm. anything in the morning. This is a rare yeah. exception, but and generally, if I'm, if I'm doing my own work with people, mm. I, I might schedule Early in the morning, I might schedule late in the morning, but generally, most things happen in the afternoon because I know that's when, that's when it works into our lives better. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have, we have so little structure and we have a lot of rhythm. So there are patterns of things that we do that are the same or very similar. But rather than try to force them into something that is exactly the same every time, yeah. we've just learned to focus on the rhythm instead of the structure itself. That mm-hmm. we kind of want it to feel the same way every time. But yes. it doesn't have to look the same way every time. And that way, if we have, if we have a bump, if um, if he. Epilepsy is one of his things, yeah. incidentally. So if he has a seizure, that uh, one seizure means three days of us being out of activity mm. because it takes him a couple of days to recover. Yeah. And so if we have something like that come up, then it's easy for us just to say, okay, well, the the two things that we had scheduled for these other days, I will reschedule because it's just one thing a day. Yeah. And then we can do whatever it is that our bodies need to do to take care of themselves. And it's just, it's this oddly marvelous, intentional way to live that I think that we're all designed for, right? Yes. Because we're not all meant to wear watches or or have alarms on our phones
0: to to fit into a structure that has become yeah. the, the norm, right? That nine to yeah. five living. And just as you're saying that, you know, even though part of me is like to be out with an illness for two days is awful, but to be able to live where you can just fit your schedule to your body's needs mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds like what we should be doing. And I mean, that exactly. actually brings me to the next um question is you had actually mentioned how chronic illness has been a blessing so you Mm -hmm. you know you had looked at you know all the the great things about it um when we had talked last and you know things that it's helped you with like setting boundaries and you know being able to kind of live by your life like what else is there anything else that you kind of the way you live now you see is a blessing and it's due to chronic illness.
1: Absolutely. The, the boundaries are important. Mm-hmm. Being able to advocate for self. And also in my case, because I'm a parent of someone that is medically exceptional, learning how to advocate for him and to teach him to advocate for himself mm-hmm. without, um, without being dismissed. As a pediatric patient, he has a whole other set of considerations that all of his experiences are minimized, and um, being able to say, hey, you know, that's not okay with me, or no, this pain is really bad, and I appreciate that you can't see it, or could we talk about something other than just squashing these symptoms, like, how can I really get better. Mm -hmm. What are my what are my options there? And if you don't know, can you please tell me someone who might? And a decade ago, I don't think I would have been a well, I wasn't saying those things. I wasn't Mm -hmm. having those conversations because I didn't feel it was my place to, I had been Mm -hmm. trained to not ask hard questions and to go with whatever the physician says. Mm well, it's it's my body. It's my experience, and it's my life, and it needs to be functional for me. So help me get there, yeah um, but the yeah, the boundaries are a really big thing, saying no to stuff, learning about which things really are important
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's almost never being somewhere on time, yeah or doing a certain number of things in a day it is it's about the connection it's about paying attention to things and being responsive instead of reactive all of that means the deeper life life lessons that you see show up in places and you think oh yeah that's what that's about um resources learning how to manage your resources mm-hmm. is a big thing because you sometimes you can see everything you have and sometimes you can't and so you're making an educated guess yeah but you you don't get your resources renewed the same ways that other people do yeah. and they have to last longer your resources also have to do more than they would for someone else so learning how to allocate them in a way that makes sense, that supports the things that are most important to you and to bring your boundaries into that and have the courage to advocate for yourself. All of those things come together and it is a master exercise mm-hmm. in creating the life that suits you. Yeah, The life that makes sense for who you are as a human being but also your mental health and your emotional health because if you keep trying well at least in my case when I was continuing to try to fit myself into other things it just it didn't work if I take this medication then I'll be functional enough to do this which is really not what I was intended or designed yeah. or destined to do any of those things because I, I feel like if if I had been meant for that, then things would just work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd, I'd still have to work hard for them. They wouldn't just fall in my lap, but that there was so much discord in my body to the point where I couldn't get out of bed on some days. Yeah. That it it seems like and when things are going in a complimentary way, that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? so yeah. What, what can I change? It's like, listen to my body. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's alarming how much we don't do that and how mm. much we train our kids not to do that. Yeah. How much the medical profession encourages us not to do that.
0: Yeah yeah it's it's frightening now other than medical professionals when you are talking to other people perhaps someone who doesn't know you very well and you kind of perhaps mention that you suffer from a chronic illness or multiple chronic illnesses like what's the general reaction you get from people are they supportive do they question you yeah what do they (laughs) say well I've I've
1: learned enough by now to not have conversations with people that I don't know Mm -hmm. about this kind of stuff because Mm -hmm. the response is usually, there are a couple things. Well, you don't look sick, which is not helpful. No. (laughs) Um, And then people tend to start in with a whole bunch of questions. Well, have you tried echinacea? Or what about um, float sessions? I hear they're fabulous. Or have you tried eating this
0: superfood
1: and following this diet and taking this supplement? Because I have a friend who said that that worked. And like literally her life is totally amazing now. Yeah, Those kinds of things. And it, I know that people are saying those, those things in an effort to be helpful. And they're they're looking for a way that they can contribute. And I would like to encourage people that it's okay and actually preferred to not say anything about Mm -hmm. that. Because believe me when I say that the person that you're talking to has researched everything, has looked all over the place for stuff that is going to make even the tiniest bit of positive difference, has tried, all kinds of different things has been doing this for 5 years 10 years 20 years 40 years whatever the case may be which is a lot longer than the 3 minutes that you've had to think about it yeah and you know and when you when you think about it that way you think oh yeah i kind of get what you're saying but when when you're the person having conversation and the first thing that occurs to you is well you don't look sick and so it must not be as bad as you're saying. And let me help you with my vast medical knowledge and give you all of <laughs> these things that you should be doing that you clearly aren't doing because then this wouldn't be a problem. And that's what it feels like. I know that's mm-hmm. not how it's intended, but that's when, when we hear stuff like that, it's just, there's no point in having a conversation.
0: Yeah, fair enough. It's just best not to bring it up. I know. And like, you know, okay, someone may have be taking some superfood and on some super fad diet, like even just diets don't, just because it worked for one person doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. You don't know anyone else's body. Like, yeah, it's just crazy. So it's almost like they try and cure you in the three minutes that uh, they've been talking to you. Yes.
1: And it's so prevalent. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it, when we're talking about it now, it sounds ridiculous. Like how could someone, how could someone presume to think that, oh, well you just, you, my, my friend's sister sells a supplement (laughs) and you should totally start taking it and it's $300 a month or whatever it is. Um, But when you look at it from a different perspective, of someone who's on the receiving end of this, you realize that is, that's pretty crazy what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Now, why do you think chronic illness is something that is still kind of deemed as an uncomfortable conversation? Like, why is there still stigma around that? And what can we do to change that? There's so much that we don't know about it
1: earlier we were talking about the cause and the treatment of things. And, And when we aren't sure about the cause or when we aren't sure about treatment options, it's hard to talk about it because we have created a society where there's a lot of immediate gratification that we are problem solvers. We just do things and, And when we are in places where there's the discomfort of not knowing, like some of the classic Buddhist discussions with um, beginner's mind and not knowing and impermanence and all of that kind of stuff, it's that unease that we we try to do something with, Mm -hmm. which is why people throw solutions at us, which is why we don't talk about it, which is why um which is why people maybe can be really defensive about things is that there's when we don't know stuff, we fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And that's where misunderstandings come from and then people are making assumptions about things and and it's crummy on both sides
0: it's almost like we've created a culture of quick fixes so when there's yeah. something that there's no quick fix for it's almost like people just kind of want to walk away from it and right you know, yeah it's like if there's no quick fix then there's nothing mm-hmm. we can do whereas it might just may just take some time or maybe there's no fix but there's coping mechanisms yeah
1: with chronic illnesses there're typically lifetime Mm -hmm. they don't go away and that's um that's okay Mm -hmm. because I think that they're invitations for us to really be intentional about how we live and to make better decisions and to do things that suit us and to have the courage that maybe we didn't have before yeah to assert ourselves and do the things that work for us instead of the things that we believe will be beneficial for other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of coping mechanisms um, do you use? Is there anything in particular? I know you did acupuncture for a little while. Is there anything that's been ongoing that you find really helpful? My biggest one is art, which Mm -hmm. is now my career. So that works out pretty well.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's something about that. It's an altered state, an altered level of consciousness, Mm -hmm. I think, when you can totally immerse yourself into something without being concerned about how it's going to be seen by other people or or what you're going to do next, those kinds of things, that flow state that's become a popular discussion And just giving way to what you feel compelled to do rather than what is logically the next appropriate thing to do. So it it removes so much pressure. And in a in a life where there feels like there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of expectation, Mm -hmm. it's nice to have that lift. And so all of the the stress of expectation, it just goes away. So I do art every day now and it's made, it's made a huge difference. The other big thing for me is being outside. Mm. And fortunately we live in a forest, so it's easy for us just to open the front door and go stand in the yard. And there are all kinds of creatures and enormous trees. And that's lovely. but it's that, for me, it really has been about disconnecting from the structured life, the things that we've convinced ourselves are most valuable and most civilized and sophisticated. Yeah. The things that I was fighting so hard to acquire.
0: Hmm.
1: And now, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Wow.
0: What about technology? how How has that, or has it affected you in any way? Is it something you step away from, especially in this world of like social media? hmm Did you ever find that kind of made your uh, symptoms worse, or is it something you avoid altogether? it
1: certainly It certainly can help me feel less well. Mm-hmm it's all about how i use it mm. and the big thing for me now is that for anything that i do i i need to have a purpose there has to be some intention that's tied to something the question that i typically ask myself is is this activity something that is going to enhance how i feel mm. and in a not in a short term Eat all the cookies, kind of way. Yeah, yeah. But in a <laughs> because yes, that does feel good. And then a couple of hours later, you're it hating life. So and saying, oh, yeah, no, not the cookies. I'm never going to do that again. And sure enough, the cookies show up, and there you are. Um, but it's kind of a, social media is like that for mm-hmm. me. That when I use it in a way that makes sense for me and is aligned with values and I know that sounds really like why are you thinking about values when you're using social media because that's that's how I want to live my life and I want to make sure that the time that I have is time that I'm investing that I'm getting a return on and not spending and not getting anything for um but I I love how social media connects people I love how you can have quite full relationships with people that you've never seen in person mm-hmm. that you can find people that have had experiences similar to yours, which is difficult to do in, mm-hmm. in real life. And there's um for people that live with chronic illness that maybe have difficulty getting out of the house. Goodness. If you are um, if you live with agoraphobia and you, you actually cannot leave your house because it's too terrifying. How do you have
0: a healthy social yeah. interaction with the people? Online community is kind of a great answer for that. Yeah. Right? A great way to do that.
1: I think particularly for this community, for for parents who are caregivers for kids that are in the hospital a lot mm-hmm. or, or people that are, they're on bad rest for something or or they've had seven surgeries in six years, and they're in recovery a lot of the time yeah. for them it's a it's a really powerful thing, but it's also easy to get caught up in comparison and yes, and feeling the that sense of it's not fair because all of these people are plastering their photographs here about how great their lives are and I'm learning how to walk again mm-hmm. or something like that and it's yeah it can be disheartening too but yeah. you, you do get to curate what you look at Yeah. so that's that's a, a big factor and if that other stuff bothers you I don't think that it's inappropriate to screen it out because you yeah. ultimately get to decide what you want to take in
0: Yeah, again, you're creating those boundaries, Mm -hmm. right? It's like boundaries on social media, which is a great thing. Now, before we wrap up, you had um, alluded when we last chatted about an art project that you were working Mm -hmm. on. Would you be willing to share some details of that? I can share some details about that. It is
1: called Scribbled Out. And... I'm working on a series of portraits that are done in a scribbled style. And if you're curious about what that looks like, you can go online in any search engine and put in scribbled portraits and you'll see a bunch of different options. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just really, it's line drawing with scribbles. So it's a very loose, almost chaotic feel to Mm -hmm. it, but it also feels quite, orderly because you can tell that everything has a place and everything is intentional. It's just also kind of an explosion. Um, and these are portraits of people who live with an invisible illness. And so I'm, I'm very much focused on the the people that hear, well, you don't look sick
0: mm-hmm. as if
1: somehow that <laughs> well, great. Then let me just, <laughs> take off all of this stuff and get over myself right yeah yeah um but the scribbled out comes from this idea that that's that's how we feel a lot of the time mm-hmm. we feel like we've just been crossed out or scribbled out mm-hmm. uh, and things are complicated so there's there it feels scribbly like there's not one clean line that shows us where to go or what to do or how to live it's this big tangled knot of stuff. And so marrying that with how how other people see these illnesses that they can't see and how they try to make sense of that. It's it does feel very scribbly. Mm. So these portraits are meant to be conversation starters. And I am doing portraits of the people that agree to participate. And representing some of their stories in the project and finding a way to match the stories that they tell me with the portrait so that the the level the balance of chaos and order in the portrait reflects the chaos and order in their story. Yeah. Because wow. there's always both. And the goal with this is to get them into places that provide health services. So mental health offices, community health clinics, physician's offices, those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And just have them as, as small displays so that people can talk about them. Not as any massive art installation somewhere, but I really do hope that people can ask some of the uncomfortable questions and have some of those uncomfortable discussions about this because you know, someone who lives with a chronic illness, even if you don't see it. And it is a very different way
0: to live. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, I hope that somewhere online You share that so I can maybe have a little peek (laughs) if you do don't hesitate to send me the link I'd be happy to share it if you're willing um but this has been amazing I'm really grateful that you shared your story especially at eight o'clock in the morning with myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we met Debbie you're just such a delightful human and I love what you're doing with this blog and podcast
0: Thank you. I think these conversations are important. So Mm -hmm. thanks again for sharing your story. And hopefully it will inspire, you know, people like me who don't quite fully understand chronic illness so that, you know, we can be better people and better friends to the people that we know around us. So thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. I definitely hope that episode was educational for you. Now, if you did enjoy our conversation, then make sure that you let us know in the comment section on our website, uncomfortable.blog, or on any of our social media channels. We're on Facebook and Instagram at uncomfortable.blog and Twitter at uncomfy underscore podcast. Now you can support our podcast by signing up to be a patron and pledging as little as $2 US per month so that we can keep this podcast running. We want to continue having these uncomfortable conversations. So please help us do that. To find out more, you can visit uncomfortable.blog forward slash donate. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Now go forth and get uncomfortable.